Hello, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Rosemarie Ankwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Community Voice, Blavity, Ebony, The Root, The Griot, and News One. Today we'll begin from an article titled, Response to Customer Needs Proves a Game Changer for This Family's Business, written by the Community Voice staff, July 8, 2022. It's amazing how a shift in thinking about the way you do business can make a monumental difference. That's the case for the Cotners, C-O-T-T-N-E-R-S, husband and wife, Woody and Candace, and their son, Jerome, are the owners and operators of Global Aviation Technologies. Woody, who had a great mind for engineering, was an in-demand tech in the aviation industry, and like most budding entrepreneurs, saw a need and responded to it. The customers wanted some of the newer technologies, but weren't willing to invest in another multi-million dollar plane to get them. The aircraft companies, who were more interested in selling another plane, refused to do the work. Woody started part-time producing the engineering designs that were required for customers to make the upgrades to their planes. He rented a small office, so the next time the proverbial layoff came around, he walked out of the door and into his business full-time. For years, the couple operated a small but successful business, handling the engineering work customers needed for their upgrades. Candace joined the company handling the business operations. Then once again, Woody made a shift in response to their customers' requests, which grew them from a small engineering firm to a manufacturing and maintenance company with two hangars at Wichita's Municipal Airport. What was it the customer wanted? They wanted a one-stop shop, said Woody. Instead of taking his engineering designs somewhere else to get them installed, People wanted him to install them. These same customers also needed repairs, maintenance, and required periodic overhauls on their planes. When the plane was down for retrofit, they asked, couldn't they get everything taken care of at once? It wasn't necessarily an aha moment. Woody knew it was a great idea, but major expansions of that level would require major capital investments. We can tell you they put their heads down, prepared their financials, and went shopping for capital. With their expansion, the Cotners also added a manufacturing facility. Those parts Woody and his team of engineers were designing, not their crew, manufactured them for retail. In addition to their son, Jerome, who helps run the business, the Cotners now employ a staff of about 30. A close and religious family, they give credit to God for their blessings, but keep working hard so he knows they're open and ready to receive them. The next article is titled, Kansas Report on Evictions Highlights Ignorance of Legal System, Confusion Over Rent Assistance. Community Voice, Sherman Smith, July 8, 2022. A new judicial committee report on evictions in Kansas points to multiple problems with a complex, fast-paced legal system 
for ousting tenants who fail to pay their rent. Three-fourths of eviction filings are resolved through procedural errors, an indicator of the ignorance tenants and landlords have with the legal process, the report found. Under the strain of the pandemic, courts failed to mitigate widespread confusion and misunderstanding about the availability of $300 million in federal aid administered by the state, half of which went unused. The report recommended judges tell tenants early in the process that they can fight their eviction and that rental aid may be available to them. Other recommendations include targeting high schoolers with programs designed to educate them about the landlord-tenant relationship before they sign their first lease. The committee also applied for a grant to install a program in the Sedgwick County, which accounts for one-third of the state's eviction filings, where an evictions facilitator could try to resolve disputes outside the legal system. The Kansas Supreme Court established the committee to examine best practices in anticipation of a spike in evictions after state and federal moratoriums expired in October 2021. Judge Sarah Warner of the Kansas Court of Appeals led the committee, which included judges, trial clerks, attorneys who routinely represent tenants and property owners, and representatives of landlords in Wichita and Hayes. The 29-page report, dated April 20th, was released on Wednesday. The committee examined the evictions process and court filings going back to the 12-month fiscal year that ended in June 2017. The panel found that tenants didn't respond to half the filings, resulting in an automatic judgment for the landlords. A quarter of the cases were dismissed because property owners had not provided a three-day notice required under state law for a tenant to come up with the overdue rent. Courts reported about 14,500 eviction filings per year in the three years before the pandemic, but no more than 150 cases went to trial in any of those years. The committee questions the wisdom and equity of this judicial model, which relies, at least in part, on litigants' ignorance to stay afloat, the report said. Vince Munoz, M-U-N-O-Z, of Rent Zero Kansas, a coalition that advocates for tenants, questioned the findings and recommendations of the committee because its members didn't include a tenant or anybody who had been evicted. It's really hard to understate how significant of an oversight that is, Munoz said. For people who experience an eviction, when the court case is done, that's when the impact starts on their life. For all the attorneys involved, it's all over when the judge bangs the gavel or releases the opinion. He also said the report misses a broader point about the number of informal evictions that happen in Kansas by the landlords who discontinue utilities or otherwise harass tenants into leaving. Many landlords decline to renew leases 
as they expired during the pandemic or refused to accept federal aid. Loopholes in state and federal orders banning evictions, Munoz said. Those factors could help explain why most of Kansas didn't see a spike in eviction filings after the moratoriums expired. The data presented in the committee's report also shows that Kansas courts continued to handle thousands of eviction cases while the moratoriums were in place. The courts don't really serve tenants' interests, Munoz said. They serve those who are already powerful in the situation, and they kind of sanitize and formalize landlord power over tenants. The Judicial Committee report, however, is critical to how some courts handle evictions and sympathetic to the challenges presented to tenants throughout the legal process that is designed to last no more than six weeks. After a landlord provides a three-day notice for overdue rent and the three days lapse without payment, the landlord can file an eviction petition in district court. The tenant has 14 days to respond. If the tenant disputes the allegation, a trial is set within 14 days. If the property owner prevails at trial, the court will order the tenant to be removed within 14 days. Tenants may choose not to contest an eviction because they know they are unable to pay rent, the report found, or because they feel overwhelmed and don't understand that they have a right to contest the eviction. Tenants also didn't know that the rental assistance was available or that it could be used even after the landlord had filed an eviction. Some judges asked the parties at trial if they had considered trying to get rental aid, but attorneys said that information needed to be presented early in the process, especially since so few cases reached trial. The committee took interest in a program in Monroe County, Indiana, where the district court employs an evictions facilitator who answers questions for property owners and tenants, provides information about federal aid, and is available to act as a mediator if the two sides are willing to resolve the case outside of court. As one committee member who manages rental properties observed, it is in everyone's best interest if a tenant continues to live in the property and a property owner continues to be paid under the lease, the report said. The committee applied for grant through National Center for State Courts to establish a similar program in Sedgwick County that could serve as a toolkit across the state. Unlike other areas of the state, eviction filings significantly increased in Sedgwick County after moratoriums were lifted. While the rest of the state saw filings last fall, merrily returned to pre-pandemic levels. There was a 25% increase from pre-pandemic eviction cases in Sedgwick County. More cases in Sedgwick County result in a default judgment for the property owner and fewer cases go to trial. Munoz said Sedgwick County established its own rental assistance program with federal aid, 
while the rest of the state was served by the Kansas Housing Resources Corporation. Under the KHRC program, tenants and landlords can apply jointly for up to 18 months of assistance. Eligible households also may receive a lump sum of $900 in past due or future internet assistance. The organization's general counsel served on the committee and a spokeswoman said KHRC has now dispersed $196 million in rental aid. More than a third of Kansas rent their homes, and many have struggled to cover rent and utility bills since the pandemic began, said Ryan Vincent, executive director of KHRC, in a news release in March. The financial repercussions are far from over for our most vulnerable families. This crucial assistance is still available to keep Kansans safely housed throughout our economic recovery. This article was titled, Kansas Report on Evictions, Highlight Ignorance of Legal System, Confusion Over Rent Assistance, by the Kansas Reflector Editors, Community Voice, Sherman Smith, July 8, 2022. The next article is titled, Kiki Palmer and McDonald's Gift Future 22 Change Leaders with $220,000 Grant by Dante Ramos, Blavity News, July 8, 2022. Award-winning actress Kiki Palmer assisted McDonald's USA in presenting the Future 22 Leaders with grants at a special event during the Essence Festival. During a ceremony thrown in their honor by the Essence Festival, $220,000 in grants was awarded. Through its black and positively golden moment, McDonald's USA gifted their future 22 leaders each with $10,000 grants to advance the selected individuals and their community-focused causes. It's an honor to join McDonald's to recognize and celebrate these awesome leaders while also supporting their work and mission, Kiki said. They are creating bright futures for themselves and the next generation and really all of us and the excitement on their faces during the McDonald's surprise gave me joy. Each selected future 22 member has had their story told through an extensive campaign that includes videos on Instagram, on McDonald's YouTube channel, and radio ads featuring Kiki Palmer. The seven selected Future 22 members whose stories were shared are Nasir Barnes from Deerfield, Massachusetts, Kevin Brooks from Memphis, Tennessee, Haricia Hutchinson from Newburgh, New York, Marvion Maybon, M-A-B-O-N, from Watts, California, Earl Robinson from Richmond, Virginia, Nyla Sams from Long Island, New York, and J.C. Smith from Jackson, Florida. During the celebratory event, McDonald's sponsored an open discussion moderated by 
McDonald's Senior Director of Cultural Engagement, Elizabeth Campbell. The curated conversation was to inspire the future 22 leaders and advise them on staying the course, finding balance in life while working toward changing the world and other impactful topics. This year's Essence Fest theme was Black Joy, and we couldn't wait to celebrate all 22 leaders and bring them to New Orleans in honor of their accomplishments, Campbell said. We certainly could have surprised them virtually, but making them a part of our Essence Fest moment meant unlocking the additional community of supporters who are McDonald's owner slash operators and the Essence Fest family to further celebrate them and demonstrate our belief in their work. It was more special than imagined, representing our commitment to feeding and fostering the communities we serve, she said. The partnership between McDonald's Future 22 and the Essence Festival is one of the many ways McDonald's has created initiatives celebrating Black people. Over 65 years, McDonald's and its owner have partnered with HBCUs and awarded scholarships to HBCU students to advance Black excellence. Their partnerships include organizations like the National Urban League, NAACP, Boys and Girls Club of America, and more. For more information on McDonald's Future 22, follow at We Are Golden on Instagram. This article was titled, Kiki Palmer and McDonald's Gift to Future 22 Change Leaders with $220,000 Grant, written by Dante Ramos, Blavity News, July 8, 2022. The next article is titled, The Black Traveler's Guide to Navigating South Africa, written by Deanna Taylor, Ebony, June 20, 2022. South Africa is often considered a lighter version of the full experience the continent provides mostly due to its complex history with colonization. But it still should be high on every black traveler's list for a number of reasons. If it's your first time visiting Africa, this is the perfect introduction. The country is home to an array of diverse cities, unique experiences, and cultures that can't be found anywhere else in the world. Yet the country is very easy to navigate and things are fairly inexpensive. Even if you visited before, there are a lot of new businesses and experiences that have popped up since the country reopened to international travelers. Where to stay? If you're in Cape Town and want to go all out with the luxury vibes, a stay at the pink-hued Belmont Mount Nelson is your best option. For decades, the hotel has received recognition for its five-star digits. If you want something a little more budget-friendly, try the Anew Hotel Greenpoint, A-N-E-W, located in walking distance to the city's Victoria and Alfred waterfront. Checking out Durban, the iconic Oyster Box Hotel is a luxury beachfront hotel that has been consistently nominated for Condé Nast Traveler's Best Hotel title. A little further down the beachfront and easier on your wallet is the Southern Sun 
Elegani, and Maharani. Although slightly older, the hotel is situated in an ideal location for those looking to explore all Durban has to offer. In Johannesburg, A.K. Joburg, the epicenter of the country's current culture and entrepreneurship explosion, a stay at the all-new Boko Rosebank should be on your list. Opened this year, the hotel has a restaurant and a wine bar on site. The second option is the Radisson Red Rosebank, also a newer hotel in Johannesburg with a rooftop bar and pool, as well as a fun sunset called a sundowner in South Africa. But we'll start in Joburg. If you're visiting on a Saturday, you'll want to run to the newly relaunched playground market, Bramfontein neighborhood, B-R-A-A-M-F-O-N-T-E-I-N. This weekend market features up-and-coming designers, the majority of which are black designers from around the country. Of course, you can't go to Joburg and not visit the Apartheid Museum, which chronicles the country's struggle and fight during apartheid. Additionally, Joburg is home to tons of galleries displaying works of artists from all over the continent. In Durban, of course you can spend time on the beach, but we highly suggest taking the drive out to see the Nelson Mandela Capture Site and Museum. It's the exact spot where the South African leader was arrested before spending over two decades in prison. The neighboring museum provides detailed insight on his life, and there's a short rendition of the long walk to freedom that you can take as well. Now for Cape Town. It's a city filled with a melting pot of cultures and people, and it honestly deserves its own guide. But here are a few of our top suggestions for unique handcrafted clothing and jewelry from local designers. Check out the watershed located at the V&A waterfront. While at the waterfront, you'll also want to spend a few hours at Zeit's Museum of Contemporary Art Africa, Z-E-I-T-Z. The state-of-the-art multi-level museum does not hold back in its approach to highlighting the struggles Black South Africans have faced over the decades. The installations are powerful, and most were commissioned by African artists from across the continent. A few other things to add to your Cape Town list include a walking tour of the colorful Bow Cap neighborhood, K-A-A-P, taking the cable car up to the top of Table Mountain, having dinner at Gold Restaurant, an immersive multi-course dinner experience that offers traditional African drumming lessons, spending an entire day out in the Winelands and a day in Camps Bay, the city's most luxurious beachfront. If you're on the adventurous side, booking a safari experience is a must-do. They're offered all over the country, with the more popular ones being outside of Cape Town and Durban. Kruger National Park allows you to drive through the park in your own vehicle, or you can hire a tour company to take you through as well. Overnight safaris are also very popular and allow for more opportunity to spot the wildlife. Safety tips and tricks. Whether you're traveling solo or with friends, safety is key. 
The cities listed are all considered major cities and will possess the same issues any other city around the world would. But here are a few tips and tricks to make your South African adventure seamless. Don't hang purses or bags on the back of chairs when out. Always keep your bags in eye view or on you. Unfortunately, pickpocketing can be an issue. Don't carry your passport on you while out. This one may seem strange, but it was the suggestion of several locals around the country. Many tourists either lose their passports or, in the extreme case, have bags stolen with passports in them. It's best to keep your passport locked in your room's safe. Never pull out large wads of cash or count it out in the open. Try to break up your cash and store it in different places on your body. When paying for items, try to be discreet when counting out your bills. This isn't necessarily to combat theft, but more so to keep vendors and businesses from overcharging when they see you have lots of cash on hand. Be mindful at night with phones and cameras. Again, always be aware of your surroundings. We understand that capturing the moment is important, but be careful with phones and cameras out in the open. It is okay to negotiate at flea markets. Some people are afraid to do so, but it is absolutely acceptable. Also, if you arrive at markets closer to closing, vendors are likely to give you better deals. The currency in South Africa is the Rand. You can exchange money once on the ground or at a bank in your home city prior to traveling. Airports typically charge a higher fee. Uber is very inexpensive all around the country. If you choose to ride by cab, be sure to agree on the rate before you take off to your destination. This article is titled, The Black Traveler's Guide to Navigating South Africa, written by Deanna Taylor, under Lifestyle and Travel, Ebony, June 20th, 2022. The next article is titled, Stacey Abrams outpaces Kemp in fundraising efforts, raises $22 million in two months. Written by Alexandra Jane, The Root, July 9, 2022. On this week's episode of Black Women Getting to the Bag, Stacey Abrams has left Republican Brian Kemp in her fundraising dust as she closes in on $50 million raised since announcing her campaign for governor last December. That's right. In just seven months, Abrams has amassed enough to place a wide gap between herself and her biggest competition, with nearly $22 million being raised in the last two months alone. According to the Washington Post, Abrams announced on Friday that her direct campaign and its associated One Georgia Committee raised $21.8 million between the beginning of May and June 30th, and in total has $18.5 million of cash on hand. Kemp, on the other hand, recently announced that his cash on hand amounts to a mere $6.4 million. While state ethics official ruled that Abrams could not use the leadership committee vehicle, One Georgia, until she had been officially named 
as the Democratic nominee after the primary, state party officials argued that she, on the basis that she was already the party's standard bearer, as she was the only Democrat to run. While we are gratified by the strong fundraising we have secured to date, we understand that our campaign must continue to dramatically outraise and outspend the incumbent in order to create a level playing field, Abrams campaign manager, Lauren Wargo, wrote in a public memo on Friday. Wargo also shared that the money would be spent on deep, continuous, and thoughtful engagement with the most diverse electorate in the state's history, continuing to focus on Abrams' voter mobilization efforts. A spokesperson for Kemp, Tate Mitchell said that Kemp will run on his record while acknowledging that Abrams and her liberal allies can and will continue to outraise and outspend our campaign. Far-left radicals from across the country are bankrolling Stacey Abrams' campaign to bring the failed agenda of the D.C. Democrats to Georgia, Mitchell said in his statement. And while Abrams' campaign is spending rapidly, as is the Kemp campaign, gone are the days where Democratic candidates had to beg and plead for resources. The money continues to roll in in support of Abrams. You know what they say, though, scared money don't make none. And Abrams continues to prove that she will not be backing down. This article is titled, Stacey Abrams Outpaces Kemp in Fundraising Efforts raises $22 million in two months by Alexandra Jane, The Root, July 9, 2022. The next article is titled, The Legend of Ben Montgomery, From Enslaved Man to One of the Richest Merchants in the South, written by Bilal G. Morris, News 1, June 13, 2022. History is a very fickle thing. Although it's a constant reminder of how far we've come, some of our most captivating stories have been lost in the abyss of time. But this is Black folklore, the time machine of storytelling, and our mission is to uncover the stories from our past that are steeped in Black excellence. One of these tales is the story of Ben Montgomery, the former slave who purchased his master's plantation to build a utopia for black people escaping the harsh realities of Jim Crow. Montgomery's story is another great testament to black resilience. He was one of the most influential black men in all of American history. Benjamin Montgomery was born a slave in Loudoun County, Virginia in 1819. When he was 17, he was sent to a slave market in Natchez, Mississippi, N-A-T-C-H-E-Z. Natchez was one of the largest domestic slave markets in the Deep South. It was known as the epicenter of American capitalism in the mid-19th century. The market operated for almost 30 years, and tens of thousands of Black people were transported from Virginia Maryland, Kentucky, and the Carolinas to the Natchez market to be sold, but all slave owners were not created equal. Benjamin Montgomery 
was purchased by Joseph Emery Davis at the Natchez Market in 1836. Joseph Davis was the older brother of future Confederate President Jefferson Davis. The Davis family owned several plantations in Mississippi, including the Breerfield Plantation, B-R-I-E-R-F-I-E-L-D, and the Hurricane Plantation in Davis Bend. Joe Davis took a different approach to managing his slaves than most other plantation owners in the Deep South. Davis didn't believe in punishing his slaves with violence and mistreatment. Instead, he developed a system of self-government for his slave community. No slave living on the plantation in Davis Bend could be punished without being tried and convicted by a jury of his peers. If a slave happened to be convicted by his or her peers, Davis was usually very lenient when it came to handing down punishments. He also made sure his slaves lived better than most in the antebellum South. Slave cabins were well built, food was rarely rationed, and slaves were left to govern themselves. But don't be confused, it was still slavery. Joseph Davis owned more than 300 slaves and never once freed any of them. No matter the conditions, people did not want to be owned by other people. Ben Montgomery was originally from Virginia, which at the time was mostly a city environment compared to Mississippi's isolated woodlands. When he first arrived at the Hurricane Plantation at Davis Bend, he tried to run away seeking freedom, but was tracked down and returned to his owner. In 1793, Congress passed the first ever Fugitive Slave Act, which allowed local governments to seize and return escapees to their owners. It also imposed penalties on anyone who helped slaves hide or escape. When Montgomery was caught and returned to Davis, he was not punished. Historians believe that instead of violence, Davis chose a diplomatic route and talked to Montgomery about why he was so unhappy. Their conversation impressed Davis, and the two developed a mutual understanding that Montgomery would be allowed to flourish as a human being, as many slaves in the South were not afforded the same luxuries. Regardless, Ben took full advantage. He learned to read and had access to the plantation library. Eventually, he began working as an office clerk for Davis, who was also an attorney. Montgomery wrote letters as well as legal briefs for his owner. He also learned land surveying and construction plans, designing special levees that protected the plantation during floods. They are still holding to this day. But Montgomery didn't stop there. He was also the architect of several plantation buildings, including the Garden College, which became the Hurricane Plantation Library. Montgomery was a true Renaissance man, a person with many talents or areas of knowledge. Not only was he an office clerk and architect, but he also became a skilled mechanic who regularly maintained steam engines that operated the cotton gins and invented a boat propeller to improve the paddle wheels of river steamboats. His 
boat propeller invention was so effective that his owner, Joseph Davis, tried to patent it under Montgomery's name. U.S. law prohibited slaves from owning patents, and it was ultimately denied. Montgomery's skill set wouldn't stop there. Davis regularly rented out his slaves to work on other plantations. This allowed Montgomery to save up money and in 1842 purchased a store on the Hurricane Plantation. His store was so successful that he was able to maintain his own line of credit with wholesalers in New Orleans and Mississippi. His store was popular among whites and blacks with some customers spending more than $1,000 worth of goods every year. This man truly did it all. He also kept the books for his slave owner and was seen as a master accountant, buying and shipping supplies for Davis. Montgomery helped Davis become one of the wealthiest men in the South at this time. Eventually, Ben Montgomery also became a rich man and purchased his wife from Davis, making her a free woman, allowing her to be a stay-at-home mother to their four children. By the start of the Civil War, Montgomery had built a life for himself and his family that few blacks in the South could have ever imagined, but it was at risk. The Civil War meant Davis and his plantation could fall and be seized by the Union Army. Because Montgomery's life was tied to Davis, he believed if the hurricane plantation failed, so would the life he built. Davis, his family, and most of his slaves fled the plantation, but Montgomery stayed behind to protect it as best he could. Ultimately, Union soldiers burned down the Hurricane Mansion in 1863, after the city of Vicksburg fell to the Union Army. Davis's land was confiscated by the federal government, and Montgomery and his family would flee to Ohio. Once the war ended in 1865, Montgomery returned to the Davis plantation, reassumed his role as the leader among the now former slaves. Davis and Montgomery would work together to get Davis's land back from the federal government. The move would ultimately bring the two men even closer as their respect for one another had grown tremendously. In October 1866, Montgomery wrote Davis a letter asking if he could lease the Hurricane and the Breerfield plantations from his former slave owner. But Davis countered with a better offer. He offered to sell Montgomery his plantation holdings for $300,000 with yearly interest. The sale made Montgomery one, if not the richest ex-slaves in the country at the time. His new plan was to build a community for former slaves built on honesty, industry, sobriety, and intelligence. 1867, Montgomery was appointed Justice of the Peace for Davis Bend by Major General E.O.C. Ord, O.R.D., the commander of the 4th Military District of Mississippi and Arkansas. This appointment made him the first black person to hold public office in Mississippi. Like many establishing black towns after the end of the Civil War, Davis Bend struggled to grow due to the harsh realities of the environment. The Mississippi River constantly flooded, making it nearly impossible to harvest sizable crops. But Montgomery and Sons Grocery Store 
continued to flourish. And by 1873, Montgomery's net worth was estimated at $230,000, putting him in the top 7% of the wealthiest merchants in the South. This article was titled, The Legend of Ben Montgomery, From Enslaved Man to One of the Richest Merchants in the South, written by Bilal G. Morris, News 1, June 13, 2022. The next article is titled, Confusion Still Persists About the Morning After Pill and the Abortion Pill. Here's what you need to know. Written by Bonita Gooch, The Community Voice, July 8, 2022. In a post-Roe America, women are looking for alternatives, so much so that there was a run on the morning after pill and the abortion pill in the days immediately following the announcement of the Supreme Court's ruling. This led several major pharmacies to place a limit on the number of these products people can purchase. What has also become clear in the post-Roe America is that there is a lot of confusion between the pills, with many people thinking they are one and the same. They are not. They are two different medications with two totally different roles in the reproductive process. Much of the confusion about the difference between the pills comes from misinformation disseminated by groups that oppose abortions. The major difference. The morning after pill, also known as emergency contraception, helps prevent pregnancy. The abortion pill, also known as a medication abortion, ends pregnancy. According to the general medical definitions of pregnancy that have been endorsed by many organizations, including the American College of Obstetricians, Gynecologists, and the United States Department of Health and Human Services, pregnancy begins when a pre-embryo completes implantation into the lining of the uterus. Hormonal methods of contraception including the morning-after pill, prevent pregnancy by inhibiting ovulation and fertilization. The morning-after pill. The morning-after pill contains medication that reduces the risk of pregnancy if started within 120 hours or five days of unprotected intercourse. The pills are produced by several manufacturers but they all contain the same basic ingredient. Levonorgestrel, a synthetic progestin that is similar to the hormone progesterone the body makes to regulate the menstrual cycles. Brand names include Plan B One Step, Take Action, My Way, Option Two, Preventiza, After Pill, My Choice, Aftera, and E-Contra. They are available over-the-counter at drugstores and can cost between $20 to $50, with generics costing less. The brand of emergency contraceptives you buy or how much you pay for it doesn't matter. All brand name and generic 
levonorgestrel. Morning after pills work just as well. There are certain brands of oral contraception taken in increased doses for use as emergency contraception that require a prescription at any age. MAP, how does it work? Morning after pill, MAP, work by delaying or inhibiting ovulation and or altering tubal transport of sperm with the goal of preventing ovulation or fertilization of the egg. Part of the confusion by those who are against MAP and abortion is that they believe these pills work to remove fertilized and implemented eggs from the woman's body. All research supports the fact that MAP only stops fertilization of an egg. Plan B pills are no longer effective once an egg is fertilized. It doesn't prevent a fertilized egg from implanting in the uterus or fear with a zygote, Z-Y-G-O-T-E, that has already been implanted. When taken within 24 hours of unprotected intercourse, the progestin-only pills are 95% effective at reducing the risk of pregnancy. The abortion pill. The abortion pill ends a pregnancy without using instruments. In the United States, the pills are approved for use by the Federal Drug Administration up to 10 weeks after the person's last menstruation. However, it's authorized for 12 weeks and sometimes longer in other countries. Also known as medication abortion, the abortion pill is actually two medications that must be prescribed by a doctor, which ends a pregnancy by blocking the hormones necessary for maintaining a pregnancy and prostol, M-I-S-O-P-R-O-S-T-O-L, which causes the uterus to contract and empty. Unlike a surgical abortion, medical abortion doesn't involve getting surgery or anesthesia, medication that makes you unconscious during an operation. Instead, you take the abortive medications in a healthcare setting, like at a doctor's office or at home. You need to follow the doctor's direction on how and when to take the drugs exactly with the second pill taken 24 to 48 hours after the first. The abortion pill is highly effective at ending very early pregnancies. Complete abortion will occur in 96 to 97% of women who choose mifeprostin. In the small percentage of cases where medication abortion fails, other abortion procedures are required to end the pregnancies. Telemedicine abortions. Medical abortion was approved for use in the United States in 2000, and by 2020, more than half of all abortions in the United States were medication abortions, according to the Gut Mature Institute, G-U-T-T-M-A-C-H-E-R, a research group that supports abortion rights. A growing number of those abortions were telemedicine abortions, also called telehealth abortion. It is essential a medical abortion in which medical consultations occur over video chat, phone call, or, or text message, and the medications are sent through the mail. With some telemedicine services, the entire process happens through telehealth, meaning the patient never meets their provider in person. They may be asked about a positive pregnancy test 
but aren't generally required to provide one, and there are no mandatory ultrasounds. In other settings, clinics or hospitals may use telehealth for just a part of the process, like the initial consultation. How safe is it? The second pill, misoprostol, induces heavy bleeding and cramping one to four hours after taking it. This is a normal response with the purpose of emptying the uterus of pregnancy tissue. Users may experience a variety of side effects, including tiredness, dizziness, cramping, heavy bleeding, diarrhea, and a mild fever. To alleviate the pain, ibuprofen can be taken. However, aspirin should be avoided as it might increase bleeding. Like with any medication, there are potential risks associated with a medical abortion. The likelihood of experiencing these risks is very low. The rare but serious complications include unsuccessful abortion, infection, prolonged bleeding, long-lasting fever, and blood clots in the uterus. The abortion pill regimen can cost from $200 to $800, depending on your insurance and provider. This article was titled, Confusion Still Persists About the Morning After Pill and the Abortion Pill. Here's what you need to know. Written by Bonita Gooch, The Community Voice, July 8, 2022. The next article is titled, Simone Biles is Youngest Presidential Medal of Freedom Recipient. In quotes, I still have no words. Written by Dante Ramos, Blavity News, July 8, 2022. Olympic gymnast Simone Biles paid a visit to the White House to be honored with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The Presidential Medal of Freedom is the nation's highest civilian honor, and Biles, 25, is the youngest person to receive the medal for her advocacy for mental health and safety children in the foster care system, and victims of sexual assault, according to the White House. President Biden announced the 17 recipients of the 2002 Presidential Medal of Freedom on July 1st. On July 7th, he draped several of this year's honorees with awards around their necks while at the White House. Other honorees include activist and athlete Megan Rapone, spelled R-A-P-I-N-O-E, actor Denzel Washington, the late John McCain, and Steve Jobs. Today, she adds to her medal count, President Biden said, as he presented Biles with her award. I don't know how you're going to find room, he joked at Biles. Reflecting on her accolade, Biles shared a photo rocking her gold medal on Instagram. Medal of Freedom. I'm so honored and thankful to be recognized as a recipient by President Biden for this prestigious award. I still have no words. I'm shocked. She captioned her photo. Biles' fiance, the NFL player Jonathan Owens, commented on his extraordinary ladies post cheering her on so proud of you baby what an amazing experience he commented under her post owens was front and center at the award ceremony 
and praised her on his Instagram for all that she's accomplished and overcome. Words can't express how proud I am of you. This has been such a surreal experience to watch you receive your Presidential Medal of Freedom and be the youngest to ever receive one at that. You're one of the strongest people I know and are so deserving. I'm so blessed to be able to experience this with you. You motivate me more every day to be the best version of myself. Such an inspiration. I love you so much, babe. Owens captioned his thread of photos. The Presidential Medal of Freedom is the nation's highest civilian honor presented to individuals who have made exemplary contributions to the prosperity, values, or security of the United States, world peace, or other significant societal, public, or private endeavors, the White House statement read. With 32 Olympic and World Championship medals, Biles can add the Medal of Freedom to her collection. This article is titled, Simone Biles is Youngest Presidential Medal of Freedom Recipient. I Still Have No Words by Dante Ramos, Blavity News, July 8, 2022. The next article is titled, This Kansas City Filmmaker is Using His Past to Bring Awareness and Create Change in the Community. Written by Jacob Martin, The Community Voice, July 15, 2022. A Kansas City man is using his own mental health struggles and his knack for storytelling to bring awareness to mental health issues facing young minorities in the Kansas City community. Building on that principle that mental health should be addressed and access to mental health resources should be available and prioritized in the United States, Abrima Abraham Sisse, E-B-R-I-M-A, Sisse, S-I-S-A-Y, created The Freedom Project, an eight-part documentary-style video series. His goal is to use the series to develop a more engaging conversation around mental health that will ultimately lead to change within the Kansas City and beyond. Ultimately, the goal is to create new legislation that will give access and resources to people who might need it the most, Sisse said. We have really big goals, but it's a global problem. People need help. Sisse, who grew up in West Africa, said as a child he witnessed a close friend drown before his eyes. The tragedy left him shaken and vulnerable, and his vulnerability led him being taken advantage of by a close acquaintance, which created a deeper hole of depression. I didn't know where to turn, Sisse said. I didn't feel like myself for a long time. It was only after embracing therapy years later that he learned how powerful taking account of your mental health can be. It changed me. I was a completely different person, Sisse said. Using those personal experiences with mental health struggles and combining it with his knack of storytelling and videography and his background in health sciences, he was able to create the Freedom Project. The series will focus on mental health as it relates to childhood trauma, domestic violence, reentry into society from prison, 
PTSD in military veterans, and public health. Each episode of the series will explore one aspect of mental health through discussion with medical professionals, nonprofit organizers, and firsthand accounts from community members. The documentary is just one part of the project. With the help of professional partners, the second part of the project is to create an education platform that healthcare providers, therapists, and counselors can use to teach young people about their own mental health. The ultimate goal of the project is to use data gathered from the Freedom Project to create legislation to strengthen mental health resources and access for all. Creating knowledge is just the foundation, Sisse said. We want to make sure every child in Kansas and Missouri is aware of their mental health. On September 30th, Sisse will premiere an introductory documentary at the Kaufman Center. The introductory documentary will focus on mental health struggles within Kansas City. Sisse said the video will examine issues surrounding domestic violence, homelessness, and burnout in Kansas City. The film will be available online and more information about attendance will be available on social media. The point of the launch is to show the city of Kansas what we've been working on, Sisse said, by actually showing people what the problem looks like and talking with medical experts and policymakers about what the solution looks like and what we are proposing. In the immediate, the project has plans to partner with the community businesses such as barbershops and clothing stores that will hold events for young people to attend, view the documentary, and have moderated discussions. Sisse admits the project is ambitious, and it might be some time before the real change is in effect. But if he can help build a stronger, healthier Kansas City, he will have succeeded. This article is titled, This Kansas City Filmmaker is Using His Past to Bring Awareness and Create Change in the Community, written by Jacob Martin, The Community Voice, July 15, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Rosemarie Ankwe. Thanks for joining me.